Abraham. So I've been bugging JD to let me do the Abraham section of Genesis, and he let me. So thank God he uh, he let me do this. But Abraham, he he's so intriguing because he is like like every monotheistic religion on earth draws something from Abraham. Like there's something that across the board is. Yeah, is awesome about Abraham. There's stuff to look at him and learn from from Abraham. Um, and so our main scripture today is going to be Genesis 15, but I'm going to build up to that um, and kind of give like a little backstory of Abraham. Hopefully it doesn't take too long. But Abraham, he's from the city of Ur. There we go. He's from the city of Ur. So Ur, as you can see, that's that's Ur. That's, that's a structure that's still standing today which is crazy. Uh, so he wasn't from uh, Athens, Alabama. He wasn't from like a small town. He wasn't from Hartzell. He wasn't from Colton. He was from like New York City at this time. That was the biggest and first known civilization on earth. So he's from a big, big place. Um, a lot of idolatry in that place, a lot of just worshiping whatever and whoever in that place. And so he, he was the son of a guy named Terah. He was the kids in here to help me out, but he's times eight, so great, 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 great grandson of Noah, so that's how far we've come from Noah, and so he has a brother named Haran, and his brother named Haran had a son named Lot, we all know about Lot, he has a brother named Nahor, and um, so it says in Genesis 11, you don't have to turn there, Terah took his son Abraham, Abram, and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. Together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they went to Haran, they settled there. So this journey to Canaan was already happening, which is pretty cool. His, t his father started to move towards Canaan, but he stopped for some reason. So I wanted to show this map because uh, you might not understand how far of a, <laughs> of a journey this is. So if you were to drive... Uh, Obviously, didn't have Honda Civics back then. So, this was a pretty long journey. And for some reason, they stopped in Haran. I don't know why. It doesn't say why they stopped in Haran or even why they started traveling to Haran. But we're going to pick up while they're in Haran. So, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So he, God tells him to go, and he goes. This, this is uh, that. This is modern day. This is just from Google Maps. Um, but modern day Haran, where he was, is where the airport once was. Like that's where Canaan is. So and you can see it's a 12-hour drive if you had a Honda Civic. But he didn't have a Honda Civic. He was a 75-year-old man, and he walked. That's 911 kilometers, which would be about 500 miles, which would be like walking from here to Dallas, Texas. 
So God told this 75-year-old man, hey, go walk to Dallas, Texas with your nephew, with everything you own, and, uh, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. So Abram's intriguing, and one thing that makes him intriguing to me is that, like, why would God pick him? I think one reason God picked him, and something that stuck out to me, he likes walking. Abram had to like walking. And it made me ask myself, like, do I walk when God tells me walk? Like, Abram walked, <laughs> he walked 500 miles. Um, maybe God wants me to walk 20 feet to my neighbor's house and invite them over for dinner. Maybe God wants me to walk five feet across the pews to someone who I haven't talked to in years or someone who I'm harboring bitterness towards. Maybe God wants me to walk, I don't know, somewhere. I'm not going to walk five feet for God sometimes. But Abram <laughs> walked 500 miles for God. Uh, and we know it didn't take, you know, it took me 30 seconds to read this, but it probably took him a very, very long time. Uh, and that's that's something that we can also draw from this is that sometimes in our journeys, like um, Tom, sometimes he'll talk about his life in one sentence of his life. He'll say, and then I lived in California for 30 years. And it can seem so long, like while we're in it, but when we get through it, it's just like, and I was single for seven years. And then boom, what? But while you're in it, it, it seems like forever. And that's that's the beauty of like when we follow God and we just just keep after it every single day, um, we are going to get through it. And it might just be a sentence in your journey. A 500-mile journey is just a sentence in his story. So let's continue. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Uh, actually, I'm going to start at verse 6. It says, Abram traveled through the land as far as the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the east, west, and Ai, Ai, Ai on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. So he's moving around a lot. Got a lot of maps. You probably feel like it's geography class. And uh, so he's finally here in the promised land, and he's just kind of moving around. So he gets to Shechem. Uh, I really like the word Shechem. <laughs> so he gets to Shechem. And it says he builds an altar there. He's like, finally, I'm here. But it says the Canaanites are there. So he goes down to Bethel, and he builds an altar there. And then it says there's a famine in the land. Wait, did I miss something? I didn't miss something. So later on, there's a famine in the land. I did not read that part. But there's a famine in the land, and he goes down to Egypt and has an embarrassing situation happen in Egypt. And then he comes back to the same spot and dies. I am And then... Uh, when he comes back to I, let's go to Genesis 13. Hopefully this is working. Is this all tracking in your head? You probably all heard this, but it's fun to see it and look at the map. And all right, so when he comes back from Egypt, him and Lot, they have too much stuff, and they don't have enough space, and their people and their flocks and stuff are conflicting, and so they decide to separate. In Genesis 13, verse 14, after he's come back from Egypt, um, and after he separates from Lot, 
the Lord says to Abram, Genesis 13, verse 14, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. All right. So another thing that sticks out to me about Abram all the time is when I'm reading his story, you can't help but notice that he's always building these altars. He's always building these altars everywhere he goes. So in Shechem, he built an altar. In Bethel, he built an altar. And now in Hebron, he builds an altar again. So he's a guy who likes walking. He's a guy who likes building an altar. What is an altar? So an altar back then was a place where people would meet with God. They'd sacrifice for their sins. They'd show submission to God and worship God. So every single place he goes, he builds an altar. This is a, this is a wooden altar with a scapular altar. And it's like, it's like literally there. It's like that's on a mountain somewhere. Isn't that crazy? But um, so every place he goes, he builds this structure so that he can sit and be with God and worship God and submit to God. So that, uh-oh, it's pointing back to me. What am I doing? What kind of structure do I build in my life? Whenever I have an upgrade, whenever God brings me somewhere new, whenever I have a change of schedule, whenever I have a new job or new class schedule or new relationship or new responsibility, maybe even if my kids have new things, what structure do I have in my life that does not move, <laughs> that does not move where I can go and be with God? This is the first thing that Abram did every single place he went. You can imagine him like, I mean, he traveled a lot. But the first thing he did, he'd say, okay, you guys set the tent down over there. Uh, put the camels over there. I'm going to start building And I think that's so cool about him. Um, luckily, nowadays, we don't have to build altars with rocks, right? Um, we worship in spirit and in truth. So we have a lot of freedom with this. We can Our altars can be maybe in our closet, in our front room. It can be the front seat of our car, it can be under the staircase, I don't know, at school, or um, I used to go to the chapel at at Tuskegee, who knows, we all probably have our own little spots, but it's important to build that altar, to build that structure where you can go, Um, because you might end up, if we notice, when he went to Egypt, I don't know if we read the scripture, but it says when he went to, dang, when he went to Egypt and then he came back kind of embarrassed, it says he went and he just found the same altar that he built in Bethel. And so sometimes when we don't build altars and we kind of stray away and we kind of forget, oh, goodness, I've, I'm a Christian. I, I haven't read my Bible. I haven't had a quiet time. Sometimes we find ourselves crawling back to the old altar that we made. And it's good to have that structure. So where is your altar? Are you an altar builder? Are you like Abram? Are you an altar builder? All right, so... Let's jump to chapter 15. This is what the actual sermon should be about. So chapter 15. So a little bit of time has passed, and the word of the Lord comes to Abram again. 
15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So one thing I learned while I was studying this is uh, that sentence structure is significant. So if you look in verse 2, it starts with, but Abraham said, right? And then in verse 3, it says, and Abraham said, and Abram said, meaning that there was a gap of time in between those two sentences. Could have been, could have been 30 seconds, could have been 30 minutes, could have been probably not 30 years, 30 months, 30 weeks. It could be, there is a gap of time, which means God speaks to Abram, Abram speaks back, and God is silent. God is silent to Abram. I think a lot of times we can hear these, these Bible stories and be like, oh, well, I mean, they had it easy. God talked to them all the time. They didn't know what it feels like to, for God to be silent. There it goes right there. He says, hey, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? What do you, you keep talking about? And this is a good point. God, this is the third time that God has given him a promise that just kind of doesn't make sense for an 80-year-old man with no kids, right? So the first time, Genesis, Genesis 1, he says something that's significant about this is, wait, what? I'm 70, and we have no kids. Genesis 12, verse 7, he says, to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. What offspring, God? What offspring? That was after the 500-mile walk. He says, okay, your offspring. What offspring are you talking about? And then here... After he separates from Lot, he says, hey, I'm going to give you all this land to you and your offspring. I'll make your offspring like the dust of the ground. What offspring are you talking about, God? But he, he continues to be faithful. He continues to build these altars. He continues to follow God, even though he doesn't see what is this, what is this God talking about? What is he talking about? And so I think another thing is that he's, He's comfortable enough to say, hey, God, what do you, I don't understand what you're saying. One thing about Abram's faith, and I think this is his secret, is when he has doubts in his faith, he phrases it in this way. He says, Lord, I believe you, but what about this? He doesn't say, Lord, I don't believe you because of this. Does that make sense? I'm sure we can sometimes find ourselves on either one of these. Lord, I, he, he starts with the faith that he does have, even if it's that much faith. Lord, I believe you, but I'm 80 and my wife is barren and she's 80. So what about that? I still believe you. I'm still walking. I'm still walking through this desert 500 miles in. But the problem, if he were to say, Lord, I don't believe you because you haven't done yada, yada, there's no way he would have made it through that silence. There's no way he would have made it through that silence. Uh I had a situation like that. When I was 18, uh, my mom passed away. Y'all probably told the story so many times. But my mom, she had cancer, and we were in the hospital praying, speaking in tongues, putting anointing over the Lord, doing all the, all the right things, right? And she still passed away. And I was like, what in the world? And I did that. I said, Lord, I don't believe you because my mom died. 
I don't believe you. And I went to college and I acted a fool. And then thank God, somebody came and invited me to Bible talk. Somebody came, they walked over, <laughs> and they invited me to read the Bible, and they taught me how to do this. They taught me how to say, Lord, I believe you, even though my mom died, even though I prayed for that, right? Lord, I believe you, even though you're silent and you're not talking back to me. Lord, I believe you, even though I don't see anything happening. What about that? And that is the faith that Abraham had that got him through the silence, that got him through the desert, that got him through the barren wife, that got him through Egypt, that got him through all of these things. That's the kind of faith. That faith can exist even when everything's going wrong. And so here we are. So verse 2, Genesis 15, verse 2. He says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? No one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. My response? Hello? You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the Lord of the, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, excuse me, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it, credited, cred, can someone say that? Credited it, credited it, it to him as righteousness. Credited it, it to him as righteousness. All right, so God gives him the answer. He just wants a little bit of information. Um, Honestly, he probably didn't want to tell him that because the next chapter, what does Abram do with that information? He goes and messes up. So sometimes God holds us, holds stuff from us for our own sake. But I think it's crazy that Abram believed him because he was still 80 and he was, his wife still was barren and his wife still also was 80. So the fact that Abram believed him means that Abram was able to believe in the impossible, which is another thing about Abram's faith. He was able to believe in the impossible. He was able to keep his faith through trials and through doubt. And you cannot read Genesis 15 without reading Romans 4. So I'm going to read Romans 4 because this is how it relates to us. So Romans 4.16, I don't have this on the slide, so we're going to Romans 4, 16, therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, in whom he believed. the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Isn't that crazy that he didn't waver, and then on the other side, when he came out, he, his faith was stronger because he didn't waver through that doubt. 
that's something for us, right? When we are going through something, if we keep our faith through that period of doubt, through that period of walking through the wilderness, when nothing's happening, if we keep it, we come out on the other side with more faith, with stronger faith. Verse 21, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were right, written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So what's more impossible to believe, that a 100-year-old man and woman can have kids or that a 33-year-old man can rise from the dead? We believe in the impossible also, right? And that's why we're called Abraham's kids, right? The, the faith that he had on this night, we have to have the same faith when we're thinking about Jesus Christ. And that is what credits, credits righteousness to us. All right. Credits righteousness to us. Let's go back to Genesis. 15, verse 7. Appreciate it, Dan. So 15, verse 7. All right. This is where it gets kind of fun. So Genesis 15, verse 7. So Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll take possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. All right. So, he says, how can I know that I'll come into possession? And then God says, okay, bring me these animals, cut them in half. Which can seem kind of strange, but to Abram, it probably wasn't that strange. So this was a typical ritual in that time. Uh, a way to make like a blood covenant, right? So it was two parties. They'd cut all these animals in half, and then they would both walk through it and say, they'd walk through the blood and say, may this happen to me if I sever this covenant. And so each one would have a part of the promise, right? So they'd say, if I ever, I don't know what the example would be. If I ever steal your car, and then if I ever steal your car, may this happen to me. And they walk through, they walk through the blood. And so Abram, he's probably thinking, huh, okay. <laughs> you kind of raised the stakes on this real, real fast, God. Uh, <laughs> what are we doing? But he cuts the animals in half, but he, and he's, but he sits there. I would probably sit there too. And be like, I'm not walking through this first. Uh, I'm going to wait and see what happens. Uh, even waiting and seeing what happens, I think, takes a lot of faith. Um, and we know that he waited because vultures started coming down. He had to wave, wave the vultures off. We know that he was waiting there for a long time. The sun starts to set, and he just falls asleep. He falls asleep waiting for God. And then, verse 13, 
Well, it says there's a dreadful darkness coming on the earth. Let me continue reading. Actually, no. So it says he falls asleep in a thick, dreadful darkness comes over him. Um, this is what I think. This may not be true. This is what I think. I think that thick, dreadful darkness was God approaching, God's presence approaching, and him almost making like a barrier between him and Abram so he didn't kill him. We see that in other parts of the Bible where God is like, okay, Moses, if you turn here, I'm going to pass in front of you. And that dreadful darkness, we know also that he would obscure himself with a cloud in Exodus many times. So that dreadful darkness could be like, hey, I'm going to make this barrier, but I'm here. I'm coming here. And I just imagine God, the presence of God right there in verse 13, walking, kind of pacing around. He hasn't walked through the blood yet, but the presence of God is there, and he's just kind of talking. He's just kind of talking to Abram, talking to himself. He says, know for certain, verse 13, that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So Abram's wondering, hey, how am I going to know I'm going to get possession of it? Here, here, I'll tell you all the details of your, you and this land. This is all that's going to happen. Verse 17 says, Then when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the two Jerusalem. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergesites, and Jebusites. So a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. What in the world is that? So this is the first time that God appears as like fire in the Bible. Kind of cool. Later on, he comes as the burning bush. All right, we know that. Um, ooh, I have pictures. I have two pictures. He also appears as smoke, right, in Exodus, the burning mountain. Uh, Exodus 19, 18, it says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled by it. So it probably looks like that. I think what's cool about that is because our little scientific minds, we can think, oh, it's just a volcano. But it says the Lord descended on it in fire. It doesn't say fire came up from the mountain. So God had appeared. He, he likes to appear in, in fire. Um, the burning torch, right? We talked about the burning bush, right? But the significance of the smoke and the fire walking through the blood is that God is saying, I'll fulfill this covenant for you, right? He goes and he walks through the blood. Abram doesn't have to walk through the blood. Abram walks up, wakes up, and everything's done. And so it's like, imagine a lender, like if you go to buy a car. For teens, you don't have to worry about this, but um, your parents do. But uh, imagine like a lender, he, he agrees to finance your car or house or something. And he's like, even if you're not going to pay, the, the house is yours. The house is yours, the car is yours, even if you don't pay. And you know what? I'll make a blood covenant with you, right? That, that wouldn't work in the world, but it works with God. And this isn't even the first time God made a 
like last week he made a another covenant with man with the rainbow and said i'm never going to even though you guys are still evil i'm never going to destroy the world again and in this case he makes another covenant with us having no no obligation abram had no obligation abram didn't have to walk through the blood he didn't have to risk his life he was just there god held this up the other cool thing about him walking through the blood is it points to another time when God did walk through the blood, right? When his son came down and shed blood for us. And so every time I read this scripture, I'm thinking, God was thinking about sacrificing his son all the way back here in Genesis. That torch could have been Jesus. The smoke could have been Jesus. Who knows? I don't know which one was, he's like, I'll be the smoke today. But it could have been Jesus walking through that blood saying, hey, if this covenant is ever severed, I will shed my blood. Let this happen to me. And God is faithful to his promises even when beyond. He's faithful to his promises even though it might take 500 years, 500 miles, right? It might take 100 years. I, I love the story of Abraham. Um, there's so many things in here and feel like I was maybe all over the place, but <laughs> there's so many things that we can take from him, like the fact that he walked when God said walk, the fact that he built altars when God wasn't asking him to build an altar. He built altars. He built these structures. He went and he submitted to God, worshiped God on his own time, and nothing could disturb that, right? The fact that he kept his faith through the doubt, he kept his faith through God's silence, through God's unanswered questions, the fact that he believed in the impossible. So I'm asking myself the same question. Am I believing the impossible? Am I creating altars? Am I walking when God says walk? And then am I trusting that God is faithful to his covenant? Right? My end of the covenant, of the new covenant, is faith, which is kind of easy, right? Uh, God, God has all the other work. God has to, you know, work through my faith. Um, but my, my side of it is believe. My side of it is believe like Abram. I mean, it's not easy, but it is easy um, in the grand scheme of things. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the story of Abram. Um, I, I pray that we can imitate him. I pray that we can study him a little bit more. I don't know what we're studying next week. Abram, but uh, probably we were inspired by this. So thanks. Is anybody else disappointed that that didn't go longer? I was expecting. I was, I was like, yeah, keep going. No, I was, man, Nathan, dude, that was. That was